may be seated. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. So last week we looked at uh, the first passage in the New Testament, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. Uh, we looked at Jesus' genealogy. And one of the things that we saw was that how really the, the whole Old Testament was preparing for the Savior who was to come, the Messiah who was to come. From Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian exile, from the Babylonian exile to the birth of the Christ child. And today we look at Matthew's telling of the Christmas story. The story of the virgin who is with child by the agency of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at the, the visit by the angel, from the angel to Joseph. And the declaration that the virgin will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, the, the genealogy last week and then this, this Christmas narrative um, in the second half of Matthew 1, they both are, are telling us about the identity of Jesus, who he is. You see, if we, if we miss that, if we miss who the Bible clearly tells us Jesus is, then everything that comes after, everything else about his life and his ministry, his preaching and teaching, his miracles his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, it won't make sense. It only makes sense if we understand who Jesus is. The Christmas only makes sense if we understand who Jesus really is. As the Christmas carol goes, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? You know, what child is this? Who, who is this Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us, right? Last week he told us this child is, is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And today he tells us that he's the son of God, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is a truly, you know, extraordinary and spectacular conception and birth. And in fact, the Bible tells us of quite a few truly extraordinary and spectacular births. I mean, a survey of the Old Testament reveals that, you know, that God opens the wombs of many barren women. Women like Sarah, at nearly 100 years old, giving birth to Isaac. Manoah's barren wife giving birth to Samson. Hannah giving birth to Samuel. Then in the New Testament, Elizabeth, barren before, through the power of God, she gives birth to John the Baptist. I mean, these are all truly extraordinary and spectacular births, only possible through and by the, the power of God. However, not one of these amazing births is a virgin conception, a virgin birth. See, the incarnation, that time in human history when the preexistent Son of God, the, the, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation is the most profound mystery in the whole universe. And Matthew's about to tell us about it. As I prayed a few moments ago, I, I know that for many of us, we know this story. We know the story in Luke 2. Many of us know this story. May it never become merely just another story to us. And may it never fail to, to stun us and to encourage us 
and even to sustain us. Today, this Advent, and into the future. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. We're going to look at this passage under four headings. We're going to first look at the scandal. Then we're going to look at the surprise. Look at the Savior. Then look at the submission. So the scandal, the surprise, the Savior, and the submission. So first the scandal. Look at that first sentence in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So that that Greek word translated birth is the same Greek word translated uh, genealogy in Matthew 1.1. And you may remember from last week that this this word is the Greek word genesis, or beginning, or origin. But let me be clear, the birth of Jesus Christ in the Bethlehem manger is not the beginning of Jesus. Remember, he is the pre-existent, eternal son of God the second person of the Holy Trinity. What Matthew means is that this is the beginning of the time whenever he took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Or as our shorter catechism puts it, this is when Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Now also notice the word Christ. Many of you know this, but just to clarify, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, an important title. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means anointed one. The the Messiah, the Christ, is the long-awaited, anointed king in the line of David whom God had promised to send to save his people from their sin. So with that in mind, look at Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so here we meet Mary and Joseph. Luke's gospel account, which we've been reading through each Sunday in Advent, um, you know, tells the birth of Christ more from the viewpoint of Mary Whereas here in Matthew, we get the birth of Christ more from the viewpoint of Joseph. We don't know much about Joseph. In fact, he never says anything in this, in this text. 
In fact, I don't think he says anything in, in the Bible. And yet we learn some key details about him from this text. We see that he's betrothed to Mary, which means that they're engaged. They're engaged to be married. However, in, in that ancient culture, engagement was much more serious and binding than, um, than it is today. You know, for Joseph and Mary, a betrothal or engagement was more like stage one in, in a two-stage wedding process. And so if you look at verse 19, you notice that Joseph was already considered Mary's husband, even though they were only in stage one of this two-stage wedding process. You can also see that in verse 19, that for Joseph to break off the engagement, to break off the betrothal, he would have to get a divorce. And yet, during stage one of betrothal and engagement, Mary would have still lived at home with her parents, under their roof would not have been permitted to, to have sex with Joseph. You see, and that's why our first heading is the scandal. So look again at verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we know this is going to work. You, you think, Richard, okay, why do you say scandal? This is not scandalous. Okay, we know that, okay, but pretend you don't know that. Pretend you don't know this is all going to be fine. It's all going to be wonderful. Pretend you don't know that. Right? This, this is scandalous. Joseph doesn't know, and he, he could not have possibly known that final detail. He had no way of knowing that Mary's pregnancy was a work of God by the Holy Spirit. He'll find that out later. So let's save that stunningly spectacular detail for a little bit later. And instead, let's try to enter into the story. Focus on Joseph. I mean, can you imagine how this news that his soon-to-be bride, this love of his life, was now pregnant? And the only thing he knew was that with 100% certainty, he was not the father. So try to imagine that. I mean, this is something that would be truly unthinkable, I mean, for a young man today, but especially a young man 2,000 years ago. Now, again, we, okay, we know everything's going to be okay, but Joseph doesn't know that everything's going to be okay. From his perspective, he will never be able to trust Mary ever again. I mean, how could he? I mean, he loved her, but they now had no future together. His life, his dreams, his reputation, his family's social standing in the local community— it was all in jeopardy, if not essentially already all ruined. Just like that. And so we read in verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so verse 19 tells us that Joseph is a, is a just man, literally a, a righteous man. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, that Joseph was sinless. He wasn't sinlessly righteous. He's a sinner just like me just like you, just like each and every one of us. What it does mean is that he was a man with a faithful covenant relationship with God because of God's grace. So as we're thinking about this story and trying to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes, listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He asks the question, what is Joseph to do? He cannot go on with the marriage. He's a righteous man. But he's betrothed, and that was a legally binding contract. He must seek to dissolve it. 
but it's a public contract. Everyone will know. The situation is his worst nightmare. His soul aches with multi-layered disappointments. But Joseph is a righteous man because he has experienced God's grace. And so he, in turn, seeks to do the gracious thing, to divorce Mary quietly with the least degree of embarrassment possible for Mary's sake, for the sake of both his and her parents, and for his own sake. But how could he possibly do that? This was rural, first century, ancient Near East. How could this be hidden? Mary's ruined. Life has come to a grinding halt, and Joseph is staring into a black hole. So think about that. I mean, how, how would you feel if you were in Joseph's shoes? I mean, would you be more humiliated? Okay, I just looked at a guy who's engaged, and he smiled at me. Okay, so I don't, I'm not going to look, I'm trying to try to look at him again, but okay. So would you be more humiliated? Would you be more angry? More jealous? What would you do? How do you typically respond to impossibly difficult circumstances in your life that blindside you? That come out of nowhere. You know, be honest in the quietness of your own heart and mind. I mean, what would you do? Well, look again at verse 19. Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph thought it all through seriously, and he resolved to do what was best for both Mary and him. He resolved to not put her to shame, but rather to divorce her quietly. So the story of Jesus' birth opens with an apparent scandal that has rocked Joseph's world. But next we see there's a surprise, a a terribly wonderful surprise. And so look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph is a just and righteous man, a a wise man, and so he doesn't act in haste. He decides to sleep on this decision. And the surprise is that an angel of the Lord comes to him, and, and, and he's told that this pregnancy is no mere pregnancy. This is the work of God by the Holy Spirit. And before we go there, okay, notice how the angel of the Lord addresses Joseph in this dream. Did you pick up on that? Joseph, son of David. Now, what does that remind you of? You think about earlier in Matthew's gospel. Think about the very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. See, the New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus being the son of David. Therefore, we shouldn't miss that, that Joseph is here called the son of David. Why? Well, in Jesus' genealogy earlier in Matthew 1, we, we see the lineage of Christ traced from Abraham to David to Christ. And we read at the end in Matthew 1, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, it doesn't say the father of Jesus, it says Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. You see, Joseph is in the line of David. And it's going to be crucial that he, essential that he adopt the Christ child into his family. Listen to how R.C. Sproul puts it. 
For Jesus to be a son of David in Jewish categories, legally his father also had to be a son of David. This is why the angel gives this honorific title to Joseph. To Joseph, the son of David, when he legally adopted the baby boy. Okay, well, let's look then at, at this wonderfully surprising and astonishing news that the angel delivers to Joseph about his bride-to-be. Look again at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is surprisingly wonderful news. Joseph, she's not committed adultery. Joseph, she's not betrayed you. Instead, something terribly, terribly wonderful is happening. That the virgin conception by the power of God through the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit means that the Christ, the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah, God's forever King in the line of David, he's coming. See, and this is why the virgin conception and, and virgin birth by the Holy Spirit is essential to our faith. It's why we confess it in, in the Apostles' Creed, where we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's why we affirm it in the Nicene Creed. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. You see, only the virgin birth preserves the humanity and the deity of Christ. His conception by the Holy Spirit points to his deity. He's the son of God. That his birth from a woman points to his humanity. He is, he is the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. And because Christ was conceived by a unique and miraculous creative act of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not corrupted by the guilt of Adam the way all of us are. See, put another way, friends, fallen humanity could not produce our own Savior. God had to send him. God had to give us the gift of a Savior who could and would accomplish our salvation for us. You see, salvation is by God's grace from first to last. It's not our doing. It's not through our works. It's by God's grace. Even the Savior had to be a gift from God. And that's exactly what the angel says next to Joseph. So this is our third heading, the Savior. And in this section, we see that there are two names given for the baby in the Virgin Mary's womb, Jesus and Emmanuel. So first, Jesus, look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So first we see that through the angel, God told Joseph, I already have a name for my son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The, 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 The name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. It literally means the Lord Yahweh saves, or the Lord Yahweh is salvation. And once again, okay, I know, I know this is a familiar story to many of us, maybe most of us. 
mean, but let it sink in what this angel is telling Joseph. God is salvation. He will save his people. The God the Son is coming to earth in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And what he says to Joseph is, you should not be afraid to take her as your wife. To adopt him into your family. To raise him in your home. For he is the long-awaited Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he will one day save his people from their sins. Joseph. He is the Savior you need. You see, friends, this Jesus is the Savior each and every one of us need. Right, our greatest problem, your great, I, don't, I don't know details of your life, you know details of my life. Our greatest problem, our greatest need, apart from God's saving grace in Christ, is the problem of our sin. That we are sinners who stand guilty before a holy and perfect God. That God is perfect and perpetually holy. And even the best among us, we fall short of that. And you may say, well, Richard, okay, yeah, I know. Not one of us is perfect. Not one of us is perfect. So surely God is going to grade on a curve. Surely God's going to understand that, that as long as we, we mean well, and, and we're more nice than we are mean, that, that, that we're, we're sweeter than we are sour, that we're, we're, we're more good than we are bad, then surely God will will we'll grade us on a curve if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, if we, if we mean well. But friends, that's not what the Bible says at all. What the Bible says is that we need righteousness. And this is a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves. That it only comes to us as a gift through Christ and his righteous life that he's lived for us. His atoning death that he has died for us. His resurrection from the grave for us. Listen to how Paul summarizes the gospel in Romans 3, 22 to 25. For there's no distinction. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinction between religious, irreligious. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That No one measures up. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Our only hope is is for God to gift us his grace. There's no hope for us to decide, okay, I'm going to try really hard to stop doing these bad things, and I'm going to try really hard to do more of these good things, and hopefully God will accept my best effort. He'll grade on a curve. He'll overlook all all the bad things I do, all the ways that I fall short. No, that's not what the Bible says. That God's grace is a gift. And how is it possible It's only possible through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood, an atoning sacrifice. You see, we only receive God's grace because Jesus died on the cross for us. He became sin for us to pay for our sin completely. To cancel our sin debt utterly, totally. And Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life so that when we trust in him, it's not just as wonderful as it is that our sins are washed away and forgiven. And praise God they are. But even more than that, Christ credits us with his righteousness. He imputes it to us. 
Put another way, he doesn't just wash us clean from our sin, but he clothes us. He dresses us in his righteousness. And notice that last phrase in verse 25 is to be received by faith. But don't think that what this means is that we bring enough faith and God brings grace and that's how we're saved. Salvation is all a gift of God. It's a gift of God's grace from first to last. Even the faith to receive and trust that Christ is the Savior we need is a gift from God, a gift of his grace. You see, not one of us can contribute to our salvation. Not one of us. As Archbishop William Temple put it, all is of God. The only thing of my very own which I can contribute to my own redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. So the angel says in verse 21, she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As J.C. Ryle puts it, this name Jesus is a very encouraging name to heavy laden sinners. He's our savior. It's the glorious good news of the gospel. Let me ask you, is, is the name of Jesus encouraging to you? Is that how you view him? How you think about him? See, it's important that we get Jesus right, that we think about him correctly, that we not simply uh, lean on and rely on and settle for you know, a figment of our own imagination, that we think, well, Jesus is like this to me. It's important that we think about, okay, who, who, who does Jesus, who does the Bible say Jesus is? Now, B.B. Warfield was a great theologian at Princeton in the beginning of the 20th century, and he, he wrote at least one Advent poem that I, I've read, and uh, I think he summarizes this, po- this point well. The, uh, the poem begins <coughs> with him denying that Jesus, as holy as he is, the thrice holy Christ, could ever possibly come into such a sinful world. The world's just so sinful, there's no way that Christ could ever come. And then in the next stanza, it changes, and he essentially says, well, if the Lord has come into this wretched world, then, then surely he comes with a sword of fury in his hand. He comes to take vengeance and, and judgment upon all the sinners. But then, this is how the poem ends. The Lord has come into this world. What? You know, not, not, not with a sword of vengeance, but in that baby sweet. That broken man, acquaint with grief, those bleeding hands and feet, he is the Lord of all the earth, how can he stoop to human birth? The Lord has come into his world, a slaughtered lamb I see, a smoking altar on which burns a sacrifice for me. He comes, he comes, O blessed day, he comes to take my sin away. If she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But then we see that he's also given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so look at verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we notice in verse 22, this took place to fulfill what? The prophet said, and this is the first of nine fulfillment passages we find throughout Matthew's gospel. See, nine times throughout the rest of Matthew, Jesus has explicitly said 
to have done something in fulfillment of what was spoken by the faithful prophets in the Old Testament. The point being, this Jesus, he is the the one God promised to send. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Trust him. Rest on his life, death, and resurrection. And then looking at Matthew 1, 22 and 23, in this quote from Isaiah 7 to 14, there's a lot that could be said about this prophecy, a lot more than we have time to say, but here's the summary. This promise was first given 700 years before Jesus' birth. King Ahaz, who we mentioned in the genealogy last week, you may remember he was a wicked king, one of the very worst. Ahaz was facing the threat of attack from foreign nations, but he refused to trust the Lord. He refused to seek the Lord's help. Instead, he sought help from the king of Assyria. It's a bad choice. The prophet Isaiah brought news to King Ahaz that God would deliver his people from the foreign armies, but Ahaz refused to listen to the Lord. So this Isaiah 7:14 promise that one day the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, came in the context of unfaithfulness, rebellion against God. And yet God promises this sign as a guarantee that the people of God, the line of David, would ultimately be preserved, not never ultimately destroyed, that one day God would come to be with his people, to dwell with his people, to save his people from their sins. So look again at verse 22 and 23. Shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, yes, Jesus will save his people from their sins. And Jesus will be called Emmanuel because he is God with us. Not merely God over us to to, to rule and reign over us as Lord, but also God with us. God among us. One of us. So that he could be for us. For us in his righteous life. Living the life we failed to live for us in his atoning death. So that he could become, become sin for us. To pay for our sin in full. He be for us in his victorious resurrection from the grave. You see, friends, I, I worry that this does not stun us. It does not encourage us. That it does not sustain us the way it should. You see, this is God doing something new. This is not God coming to us as he does throughout the Old Testament as a, as a burning bush or a smoking furnace or a pillar of fire or a whirlwind or in the tabernacle in the temple. This is God coming to us as a baby to grow up to be a man in human flesh and blood, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. This is much more personal and intimate than the burning bush and the smoking furnace and the pillar of fire and even the tabernacle and the temple. See, Jesus is God with us. Not merely God over us as our Lord, but also with us, among us, so that he could be for us, to save us from our sin, to sanctify us, to make us new, to give us new hearts. To give us his spirit to empower us to walk in newness of life. And then lastly, let's look at this final heading, the submission. Look at how the passage ends in verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Let me read that again. 
when he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, Joseph trusted, and he submitted to, and he obeyed what the Lord said to him through the angel. Now, that could not have been easy, but it was faithful. It's what God clearly called him to do. So let me ask you, and notice, see, Joseph didn't drag his feet. That when he woke up, he did what the Lord called him to do. So, so for you, what is that? What is the Lord calling you to do? What is the Lord clearly calling you to do in response to the, the clear revelation of his word? What is God calling you to do in obedience? That if you're honest, you've been dragging your feet. What is God calling you to do? God always keeps his promises. You can trust his word. Sinclair Ferguson says, the truly admirable thing about Joseph was that what he most feared was failing to obey the Lord. He knew how important it is to have the true fear of God upon your hearts, to be really afraid of offending him. Long before John Flavel wrote those words, that was why the dream angel said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. It is the will of your Lord. And as we see, Joseph was willing to do whatever God said. See, friends, you never, ever, ever need to be afraid of doing what God has clearly revealed in his word. Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing one more Christmas hymn. I'm going to read a stanza from it because I think it's a nice summary of this passage. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the record of the fulfillment of these promises that were made centuries before in the, in the birth of Christ. This reminder that you always, you always keep your promises. And we know that we can always trust you. We can always trust your word. Father, my prayer is that for today and for the rest of Advent, that this story would not fail to stun us to encourage us, to challenge us, and even to sustain us. Father, please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.